0: Meanwhile, recorded live in the Lava Lamp Lounge, it's Somewhere In Between, a Radio Zine. News, music, culture, stories, and more. This show is what we make of it, and hopefully you'll join us in the fun, too. Now let's get started. And welcome! Welcome! to the next installment of our continuing story. It's Issue 37, The First Inauguration, Part 2. George Washington's April journey from Mount Vernon to New York City was, for the most part, uneventful. However, he was greeted in extreme excitement by almost everyone who encountered him along the way. Many towns actually threw certain kinds of celebrations or staged different kinds of events for him to encounter or witness on his way through. Uh, in fact, on April 23rd, the anniversary of which was today, he took a small barge with 13 pilots through the Kilvan Cole Tidal Strait into upper New York Bay. And from there was in New York City. The encounters that he had on the way in were also of equal importance to the people who lived in Alexandria or Georgetown. He was also in Baltimore, all these different places where Washington was a hero, a war hero at that, who was going to lead the nation to who knows what. This journey in must have been Incredibly reflective for Mr. Washington. What is going to come of him? What is going to come of our country? How will this work out? And does he even want to have his name attached to it? Is that how he wants to be remembered? Well, this is how he was
1: remembered. We continue now transcribed with part two of George Washington, The Man Nobody Knows. They came shuffling in from the farms of
2: Massachusetts and Vermont, sullen, stubborn, heads hanging, big hands gripping long squirrel guns or scythes or wooden clubs. They stood around in silent groups looking at the tall man in the buff and blue uniform of the Virginia militia, appraising him silently, taking the measure of the man... When their officers tried to dress them up in some kind of order, they moved with a slow resentment, eyeing them suspiciously. Most of them wore tattered work clothes. Some were barefoot. Occasionally, you would see a father and a son, no more than 11 or 12. To look at them, you'd wonder what spark had ever prompted them to come. Could these men know the meaning of Jefferson's high-flown rhetoric, the talk of liberty and equality and freedom? Could ignorant folks such as these ever be shaped into an army that would stand against the immaculate ranks of British grenadiers?
3: When you live hard the way we did, and the rocks have got a mortgage on the land, you get in the habit of helping out. Like somebody come down one day and says, Japheth, old man Woodard's building a new barn where the old one burned. And you tell your wife, I think I'll go down and lend a hand, old man Woodard with his barn, see? Well, one day Samish... Uh, he uh, has the place near the Plank Road. He come by and says, uh, "Japheth, they got a hard row in Boston, and Israel Putnam's going over there with some of the boys to lend a hand." So I just said to Samantha, "I think I'll go down and look around the camp with Old Putt." And who went? A Yankee is a peculiar bird. Israel Putnam. He doesn't care about his head, but he dreads like the devil having his shin shot up. Give him something to stand behind, and he'll fight as long as he can see anything to shoot at. I told General Washington when he first come down to Cambridge to take command that we ought to fight guerrilla style, but he wanted discipline. Discipline. Why, before he come, when Artemis Ward was in command, there wasn't a day past when an officer wouldn't get knocked down by one of his own men. Like as not, he'd just get up and whip the tar out of his man, or... Else we'd get a new officer. But the general, he tried to put a stop to it. Torture, he used. When he'd find a man guilty of rioting, he'd had him straddle aboard six foot off the ground. Then they'd tie weights to his feet and leave him. A lot of the men wouldn't stomach it. They went home. Well, the general learned pretty quick that you can't bully a man into fighting for you.
4: He learned.
3: You've got to say that no matter how you feel about him.
4: Dear Jack, I am now to bid brother adieu to you... George Washington to his brother, 1776. I am now to bid adieu to you and to every kind of domestic ease. I am embarked on a wide ocean boundless in its prospect and in which perhaps no safe harbor will be found. My dearest... George
2: Washington to his wife, 1776.
4: I would not think of leaving this city without dropping you a line, especially as I do not know whether it will be in my power to write again till we get to camp. I go fully trusting in that providence which has been more bountiful to me than I deserve, and in full confidence of a happy meeting with you sometime in the fall. I return an unalterable affection for you which neither time nor distance can change. My best love to Jack and Nellie and regard for the rest of the family. The time is now near at hand. General orders, July 2nd,
2: 1776.
4: The time is now near at hand which must probably determine whether Americans are to be free men or slaves. Let us therefore animate and encourage each other and show to the whole world that a free man contending for liberty on his own ground is superior to any slavish mercenary on earth.
2: Now there was no retreat. The formative years were over. The meld that had worked in him as a child and a youth and a young man was brought to a boil. Washington the man had taken his cross on his shoulders and started on the long pilgrimage... ...of his mature life.
4: I know the integrity of my own heart.
2: George Washington, 1776.
4: I know the unhappy predicament I stand in. I know that without men, without arms, without ammunition... ...without anything fit for the accommodation of a soldier... ...that little is to be done. And what is more mortifying, I know that I cannot stand justified to the world... ...without exposing my
1: own weakness and injuring the cause. Those first months, he was like some kind of animal in a cage. When I'd fix his breakfast in the morning, he'd look at it like a child whose mama's trying to make him eat. And he'd push it away. That saved his life one morning in Cambridge, when one of his bodyguards tried to poison him. I'd give the plate to the hound, and he'd die. And i tell Master George. He don't say a word. He'd just walk out. And by and by they come and get Master Hickey and they hang him up to die. He was in a fierce temper those days, was Master George. No troops, he said. No money, no nothing. How'd he expect me to fight a war? One day he writing one of those letters to the gentleman in Congress. <laughs> Seemed like he's always writing, writing. And he look up at me, sudden-like, and he say, Will, the Spanish pears would be in bloom at Mount Vernon. And he stopped. And I seen he was a thousand miles away by the look in his eye. A thousand miles away.
3: He wrote to us. I remember it must have been August. Because the Spanish pale was in Blossom. Sally Fairfax. The letter was addressed to my husband. I wondered why he had sent it. Didn't say much. Something about needing supplies and money. It ended... Remember me affectionately to your wife. And that was all. Neither of us ever really understood why he wrote that letter. Well, I'm an old woman. Doesn't really matter now.
2: While Washington tried to make an army out of the chaotic, poverty-stricken mob at Cambridge, the British were encamped in Boston, only a few miles away.
3: It has always been a source of utter amazement to me... Sir William Howe, commander of the British garrison at Boston. That Washington didn't simply march into Boston and put us all to the sword. Half our troops had pneumonia, the other half had smallpox, and we had no supplies at all. If he would sent 5,000 men at us, we, he would have destroyed the entire king's force in America. Instead, he let himself send his most brilliant general, Benedict Arnold, racing off to Canada to try and take Quebec. Oh, Lord. By the time he was ready to attack... We'd made plans to evacuate the city anyway. To take a town without killing a single man was an empty victory. I never saw much value in fighting for towns anyway. But it looked good on the communication. The king rather expected it.
5: There were rumors to the effect.
3: Rumors which
2: reached mine own ears. The speaker is George III, King of England.
5: To the effect, the General Howe's sentiments were with the colonists. Some went so far as to whisper that he deliberately abandoned each opportunity to crush the insurrection. I was also aware that he was a violent Whig... and had stated publicly that America deserved her independence... and he would like to see her have it. But I know, Sir William... he is, as you may recall, a cousin of mine... with good German blood. I believe he did his best. Personally... I was never convinced of the value of those ridiculous outposts to my country anyway. This fellow Washington, I can't understand what makes a loyal British subject who has everything in life a good income, position, friends. What makes such a man become subversive and try to overthrow his government by plotting and force of arms? So, if it wasn't Howe's treachery, what was it? I spoke to my minister, Lord North, and he makes jokes. I don't know if our generals frighten the enemy, he tells me, but they certainly frighten me. Is this funny? I was always convinced, as I am now, that the majority of Americans were loyal British subjects. The number of loyalists who joined our forces was enough to show this. Burgoyne's army was doubled in a single campaign by loyal Americans. And now, secondly... I will not tolerate opposition. The opposition in my own country is fantastic. They plot against me. It's a fact, don't doubt it. I've heard them whisper, I am mad that I impose my will on every minister. But I am the king. How can I be mad? Why didn't they surrender? They are the ones who must be mad. I, I simply don't understand how we lost the colonies unless it was because of this fellow Washington. Who was certainly out of his mind to keep fighting and losing and losing and fighting. And I sent them German soldiers. German soldiers, mind you, and the finest in the world. And, and those idiots of the generals, they, they betrayed me. Yes, how to? He never wanted to win. Oh, I should have
2: known from the start. The indications of the psychosis into which George III lapsed are found in this statement. But there are also in it some interesting observations. Let's listen now to General Charles Lee, whom Washington had sent ahead to fortify New York City.
6: If it hadn't been for the stupidity and dilatoriness of the British, if the British generals hadn't been blind to their opportunities, George Washington's reputation today would probably be that of a misfit, a failure, and one of the worst blunderers in the history of military strategy who ever lived. Only an utter fool would have attempted the defense of New York, first of all, He shouldn't have tried to defend it. Second, he violated the most simple principle of warfare by dividing his troops, putting half the army over in Brooklyn and the other half in Manhattan. Good Lord, if it hadn't been for the rain, they'd have cut us to ribbons marching in from Long Island like that. They praised him for the retreat. That's what galls me. Retreat. There they were the best of our army crowded along the shore in Brooklyn... waiting for a bunch of leaky old rowboats to take them across. If Howe had swept down on them, he'd have ended the bloody war right there. But he waited. He always waited when it seemed he could finish us. And by morning, Glover's regiments of Marblehead fishermen... had managed to row them across to Manhattan. So there we were in Manhattan with the British just waiting for a few boats... So they could cross the East River and finish us. And still, that fool Washington hung on. He was incapable of making a decision. He was the worst military man I ever met in my life.
7: I remember the morning they crossed the East River to come and get us. It was the 15th of September. The first we knew the cannons over at the river were booming. The general, he was at headquarters in Harlem. He says, Horace, saddle my horse. I did. And then we followed him down the island. Well, we got halfway down and we saw the first of our troops. They was running like the devil was chasing them. And it was a red-coated devil. Well, first thing, the general rears up his horse and he yells in that big voice, Stand up and fight! But you couldn't stop them soldiers. They was full of panic. Then he grabs a whip out of my hands and he, he rides right into them, cutting and hacking at them like he was crazy. It was no use. They run right past him. He hacked at them till there was none left. And then he just sat there. And I could see them big shoulders moving like he was crying. I looked up and and there was the British coming up the island like a fury. They started shooting. But you know the British, they used to shoot from the hip and you can't hit nothing that way. Finally, I I give his horse a tug and I said, come on, General, you'll get killed. He didn't say a word. I had to lead that horse at a gallop all the way back to Harlem. You know, for a minute there, I thought he didn't care if he lived or died.
4: We are encamped now on the heights. From my tent, I can see the lower part of Manhattan in flames. A rumor that I sent incendiaries to do it, but I did not. I remain firm in my pledge to Congress to prevent the destruction of New York City. A Congress, a bunch of well-fed, squabbling idiots. They're comfortable down there in Philadelphia. What do they care that a thousand men desert me every week, that I have no food, no cavalry, no boots, no uniforms? Arnold is in the north, and no word for days. I've got to get to New Jersey. It's our only hope. Thank God for Knox and Greene and Hamilton. As for Lee, I have grave reservations, although I still believe he's a good man. Dear Lund,
2: George Washington to his brother, September 30th, 1776.
4: The enemy is within a stone's throw of us. I discharged a regiment the other day that had in it 14 men fit for duty. In short, my situation is such that if I were to wish the bitterest curse to an enemy this side of the grave, I should put him in my stead with my feelings. Yet I do not know what plan of conduct to pursue. I see the impossibility of serving with reputation or doing any essential service to the cause by continuing in command. And yet I am told that if I quit the command, inevitable ruin will follow. In confidence, I tell you that I was never in such an unhappy, divided state since I was born.
2: Retreat and retreat and retreat to White Plains, across New Jersey, to Trenton. This was the pattern of his life. Indecision, disaffection, disappointment, and loneliness. There is no question about it. In those early days of the war, George Washington was a poor general. He was trying to satisfy Congress on the one hand, his generals on the other, and leaving himself out almost completely. Congress ranted disagreed, and did nothing. His generals chafed under the lack of decision. His men staggered barefoot through the snow. And then one wintry night, the fox hunter tired of playing the fox.
4: Gentlemen, desperate diseases require desperate remedies. I've been sitting on my temper for many months now, and I serve notice to you and to Congress and to the world. That from this moment, I must do as I see fit.
2: On Christmas night of 1776, the ragged army, which had been falling back for weeks, suddenly turned about and dealt a staggering blow to its pursuers. Once again, Glover's fishermen from Marblehead were pressed into service. This time, they ferried 2,400 men, plus all of the artillery left in the Continental Arsenal, across the Delaware. At dawn, they attacked the well-stocked Hessian camp like a pack of ravening wolves. As a result of this, and the victory at Princeton which followed, Congress vested new authority in Washington, and he began to shape the army according to his own views.
5: His true greatness did not show itself in the victories he
2: won. Lafayette, Valley Forge, 1777.
5: Rather, it showed itself in defeat. It is the ability... To inspire men... With a feeling of hope... In defeat... That makes a leader... Any brilliant strategist... Can win a battle... And we had a dozen of them... Green... Gates... Arnold... Wayne... These were the wily foxes... Of the revolution... I confess... That they could outthink... And outmaneuver him... On a field of battle... And yet... He would have beaten any one of them simply because, in his largeness, as a human being, he would have eventually embraced them and won them over. Even
2: his enemies, I think. It was after Gates and Arnold had won up north, when Washington was preparing to winter at Valley Forge, that the infamous Conway Cabal began to arm itself against him. The plot was simple enough to create a large faction that would unseat Washington and replace him with Gates, or possibly Lee. Letters were sent back and forth. Meetings were held. Certain members of Congress were involved. And the whole kettle percolated merrily until a drunken officer babbled of a letter he had seen written to Gates by Conway. Washington sat down and wrote the shortest letter of his life.
4: Sir... A letter which I received last night contained the following paragraph In a letter from General Conway to General Gates, he says, Heaven has been determined to save your country, or a weak general and bad counselors would have ruined it. End quote. I am, sir, your humble servant, George Washington.
2: The effect of this letter was like lightning striking a chicken coop. Conway quickly denied he had written such a line and blamed it on Gates. Gates hastened to reassure Washington that Conway was the intriguer and not he. And pretty soon the whole plot exploded into public with denials and accusations. Washington sat calmly by and watched it unfold. His letter had been a shot in the dark. He had no idea there was any cabal forming against him. Finally... Like a patient father who has listened to his children's confessions, he brushed aside the whole affair as casually as if it had never existed and stuck to his main purpose of restoring harmony to his command. On July 4th, 1778, unknown to Washington, his good friend, General Cadwallader, faced General Conway in a duel. Sent a pistol bullet crashing into his mouth, disfiguring him for life
0: wonder if Washington is going to win this war. Who's to say? Tune in next week, April 30th, to hear part three and find out how it all turns out. And that's going to do it for us this week here on the program. Somewhere in between a radio zine. The first inauguration, part two of three. Issue 37, contained The First Inauguration, originally aired on the program Biography and Sound on July 5th, 1955. Today is the 16th anniversary of the very first video being uploaded to YouTube. The famously short video, Me at the Zoo, was published by the site's co-founder, Jawad Karim. If it feels like you've been scrolling through a list of videos to watch for 16 years and you still can't decide what to watch, don't worry, you're not alone. This episode was produced by Austin Rich in the Lava Lamp Lounge and was assembled using only the finest in 20th century technology. In the long-standing tradition of most zines, there is an open submission policy here. If you have a story, some music or poetry that you'd like to send in or read, or you just want to be a part of the show, why not drop a line to austinrich at gmail.com? That's going to do it for us this week. You guys are wonderful. You guys are beautiful. Without you, there would be no program. Be seeing you.